If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. Uh, we are, um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can take one in front of the seats in front of you. There are blue Bibles in the pockets below the seats in front of you. You're welcome to use that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible that you understand at home, please take that home. Uh, it is in large print if you are challenged with your eyes, um, and it is in red lettering. So the words of Jesus are in red in the New Testament Gospels that we see there. Uh, but we want to make sure everyone has an opportunity to have a Bible in a translation that they are comfortable understanding. Um, But Revelation chapter 3 is where we are today. We are in our last week of our series called Overcomer, Seven Letters to the Seven Churches in Revelation. And each letter we've been looking at, um, just as a quick refresher, was written by Jesus and penned by the Apostle John. This was the John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then this book of Revelation. While John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, he was given this uh, instruction by Jesus to write these letters, and there were seven different letters that went out to seven different Christian churches in Asia Minor, which is currently modern-day Turkey. Um, John was given the instruction to do that, and then the message was passed. He copied it seven times, or six times after he wrote the original, and the letters were distributed to each one of the churches. The purpose of the letter was twofold. Uh, In two of the cases, the churches received simple praise and commendation for how they were. It was like a, a, a meter or a health check on how the church was doing, and Jesus gave a letter and a message to those churches. Two of them were complete praise to say, this is what you're doing, and you're doing really well, and it was an encouragement. Five of the seven churches had a combination of praise and correction, and this is really pretty incredible because each one of the letters was written specifically in a way that was tailored to the circumstances of those churches. Now, I think though this happened almost 2,000 years ago, each one of these letters could apply to us today in the church, and that's what our encouragement and that's what my challenge has been for me and hopefully for you. But rather to look at the bigger church to ask ourselves, does this apply to bridge? Does it apply to the large church? Let's recognize first that the church begins with each one of us. And if it applies to us and it applies to a lot of us, then it will affect the larger church. Make sense? So each week we're trying to look at these churches to see here's what some of the things are that Jesus is saying. God, does it apply to us? And if so, how can we change it? We call it overcomer because at the end of each one of the letters, Jesus speaks to the opportunity and the possibility of each person, regardless of where they're coming from, each church to overcome and continue to draw closer to him. Uh, Week one, we looked at Ephesus and he said, your works are good, but you've abandoned your first love. Week two, we looked at Smyrna and Smyrna was all praise and they suffered beyond any other church that suffered in the letters. And he said, your suffering was intense. You are very, very poor in material things, but you are very rich because of your faith in Christ. Week three was Pergamum and Pergamum was true to the name of Jesus, but their church was contaminated by allowing compromise in their church. Pastor Rob talked about Thyatira in week four, and it was about growing in good works And they were doing good things, but they tolerated sin in their church instead of addressing it. That one speaks to my heart, that there are things that we may be doing that's good, but we're okay with letting things run rampant around us that need to be dealt with. And that was pretty powerful. Um, Week five was Sardis. Uh, He said they had a reputation of being alive, but they were actually dead. So on the outside, they looked like they were vibrant and alive, but inside they were spiritually dead. And last week was the church of Philadelphia. Okay, not the Philadelphia we know, okay, but Philadelphia was faithful and obedient. They recognized and they realized that obedience was the pathway to God's blessing. Uh, Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to look at the church in Laodicea. 
the church in Laodicea, beginning in verse 14. And I'm going to just start reading the letter, and then I'm going to make a couple thoughts and a couple comments on what we're seeing and why this letter is relevant to us today, especially to us today. Um, Beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the Lord in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. If you recall, when I talk about this each week, many times the introductions of each letter are very intentional to address something that's happening in that culture. So he writes it a certain way to reinforce a truth that they need to know. Um, In this situation, he's saying, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. These are the words of Jesus, and Jesus is the amen. Now, amen means I agree. And when we say amen, it's usually after we what? We pray, right? And what does it just mean? It means amen. It is the end. And what is he saying is, what he's saying here is, the last word, the final word belongs to Jesus. These are the words of the one that has the final say. He is faithful and true, meaning that he's genuinely committed to us, okay? And he is committed to his church. He's not a fair weather friend. Jesus is always committed to his church. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And he is the ruler of God's creation, which means he has full power, he has full authority, and he knows it all. Okay? So that's a good reminder when he gets ready to write to the church of Laodicea. If you want to go to somebody with all the answers, you got to come to me. Pretty cool. That's what he's saying in the intro. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is not a letter that I would have wanted to receive if I was in the church of Laodicea. Literally, what Jesus is saying here is, you make me sick. To the church in Laodicea, I look at your deeds and I look what you do and I want you to know that they're not hot and they're not cold They're just lukewarm. And because of that, you make me sick. Now, of all of the letters we've looked at, this is the strongest rebuke to all of the churches. It's been a progression if you've been listening and watching over the last seven weeks. And the progression is getting worse and worse and worse. The condition of the church of Laodicea, and we're talking even regarding Sardis, where Sardis looked like they were alive, but Sardis was dead and mostly dead inside. The church in Laodicea had the worst and the strongest rebuke of all the churches. So I ask, What was so grievous about their offense that would justify Jesus using such harsh words to the church? And I need to give you a little bit of background of what he's talking about for us to answer that question. So let's talk a little about Laodicea just briefly. Okay, three things I want to mention about the city. Number one, it was a city of knowledge. If you know anything about the city, um, I'm sorry, a city of religion. If you know anything about that city, like other cities, they had temples to various Greek gods. The largest Greek god that they worshipped was Zeus. He was the main god and they had a temple for him. They also had temples for Apollos and Hades, Athena, and Dionysus, who was the god of the grape cultivating and the wine. So they had lots of different Greek gods and temples. So they were a city of religion. They also were a city of great wealth. And this is really important for us to understand today. And I'll explain why in a little bit. The center of the banking industry in the region was in Laodicea. They were the financial hub of the region. They made the wealthiest 
They made all of the money. They had all of the money, the banks, the financial institutions. They were so wealthy. This is how wealthy this city was. They were wealthier than all of the other cities around. In AD 60, we have record of an earthquake that wrecked the entire region and destroyed many cities. In AD 60, the Roman Empire was decimated on the one area of this region based on the earthquake or because of the earthquake. Laodicea was offered aid and support by Rome to rebuild their city. And you know what they said? Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your help. We can do it ourselves. That's how wealthy they were. They didn't even take money from the government, if you will. They were so wealthy, they were able to rebuild their entire city based on their strength, their abilities, their wealth. So they were a very wealthy city. And that's important for us to understand. They were also a city of knowledge. In addition to being a city that was very wealthy, they were also a city that had a lot of knowledge. Industry, textiles, they made great fine um, rare wools and were popular wools that were being traded and sold around the region. So they were knowledgeable in textiles and industry. They were also knowledgeable in medicine. They had a medical school in Laodicea. Okay, They had a medical school. It was actually a school of ophthalmology where it was an eye school. And they were known all around the region for this eye salve or this eye ointment that they would make Then it came from Laodicea. So they had a lot of things going for them. They were highly regarded and people would go there to be the center of financial wealth, economic, and the people of Laodicea thought they were pretty awesome. Okay, so set the stage. Does that make sense where we are? Okay, they had one problem though. And the one problem was where it was built on this plateau, Laodicea lacked a natural water supply. So this beautiful city that was the financial hub, it would be like having New York City, which is really interesting the way this is in the parallel, because New York City would be a parallel to this in terms of the financial strength. New York City does not have a water supply. Laodicea does not have a water supply. Where does New York City get its water? It gets it from the Catskill Mountains that are miles north, and it's tunneled 800 feet under the ground into the city. That's why you can go into the city and have some of the best-tasting water you've ever had because it comes from the Catskill Mountains in New York State. That was free, by the way, if you didn't know that. Okay. Laodicea, unfortunately, didn't have the same result. The problem was they lacked a natural water supply, so they had to pipe it in from other areas. Look at this map, and let me show you the two surrounding cities, the close cities. We had Hierapolis that was about six miles to the north, and Colossae that was about ten miles to the east. For them to get water to their city, they had to transport it from these two cities to their city. Okay, Now, Hierapolis to the north was a very well-known town, and they were known specifically for their hot water springs. Their water was hot. They came from a region that had hot water. It was a medicinal thing. People would bathe in it. People would would receive healing from these springs. It wasn't supernatural. It was just how many people take cold showers versus hot showers. Hot showers are better, right? So that's what's going on in there. It kept them clean, and it was a healing uh, property of the people in Hierapolis. Colossae had awesome water as well, and it was cold, and it came from the refreshing mountains of the region. So if you went to Hierapolis, you'd have awesome hot water. If you went to Colossae, you'd have awesome, cold, refreshing water. So how did they transport it? Through aqueducts. And they built piping and aqueducts to transport it 10 miles or 6 miles. And these are samples of some of the things that the Laodiceans financed and built. Okay, So that's an actual picture on the left of one of the pipes that they made that's still in existence in the ruins. And that's one of the aqueducts that they built en route to their city. Isn't that incredible? That's how they piped it, six miles or ten miles. Now, here is the problem. 
Hot water that travels six miles is no longer hot when it gets to the city. When it gets to the city, hot water is what? Lukewarm. Cold water that's refreshing from Colossae, you pull it right out of the, right out of the, the, the urn or whatever, not urn, that's a bad idea, right out of the well, and you drink from it. It's beautiful, it's refreshing. Pipe it 10 miles to Laodicea. By the time it gets to Laodicea, in the hot temperatures in the sun of that region, it is lukewarm. Now, the hitch to this is that the water was also high in minerals, and it tasted really gross when it was lukewarm. So the people in Laodicea had all this wealth, all this energy, all this prosperity and knowledge, and yet they didn't have a good water supply, and the people would complain about the quality of their water. In fact, they would complain so much about it, they would say it made them sick because they had to drink lukewarm water. Now, I know that for a fact. I mean, anybody ever have lukewarm water versus cold or hot water would would understand this. And I'm going to tell you something that might make your stomach turn, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, So anybody have indigestion ever? Anyone have indigestion? Okay, well, you can solve that with like little calcium pills called Tums and Rolaids and things like that. So I like to go straight to the source, though. I get a little spoonful of baking soda, and I put it in water, and I stir it all up, and I just drink the whole thing. Okay, when that happens, look at faces. Everyone's like, you're disgusting. That's gross. Here's what I can tell you. If I put it in hot water and I drink it, okay, uh, not too good. If I put it in cold water and I drink it, it's palatable. Put it in lukewarm water, it's disgusting. I don't know why, but it is. And what I'm saying about this is the people in Laodicea had a problem. And their big problem was, though the local towns were known for their awesome water supplies, when the water came to Laodicea, it wasn't hot, it wasn't cold, it was useless, and it was disgusting. And it gives more context to what Jesus is speaking in verse 15 and 16. Look again, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. You see, a lot of times people misinterpret this passage and think that Jesus is saying to the church, I wish you were on fire for me or you were dead. And that is not what he's saying. He's saying, I wish you were either useful like the church, the water supply in Hierapolis, or you were useful and productive like the water from the, from the church of the city of Colossae. But because you're neither, you're lukewarm, you have no purpose. And because you have no purpose, you make me sick. Your water... Pl- The word actually spit you out of my mouth literally means to vomit. Jesus is saying, you think your water supply makes you want to vomit? Well, your spiritual condition makes me want to vomit. I mean, isn't that love right there? I mean, Jesus speaking to the church. Now, that's pretty strong. Why would Jesus say that? Verse 17, he gives us a little insight into why. And this is why all the context is so important and why it applies to us. Verse 17, he says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What happened? In the same way the city of Laodicea was arrogant and prideful, in the same way that they viewed themselves as fully able to care for and meet all of their needs, the church looked exactly like the city. In the same way the city said, we don't need help from anyone, Rome, thanks, but no thanks, we can do it ourselves. The mindset of the culture in that city transferred to the mindset of the church. We don't need any help. We can solve our problems ourselves. We have the money. We have the wealth. We have the wisdom. We have the technology. Now ask yourself, 
How does that relate to us in 2019? In our country, the United States of America, and I think this is probably one of the most relevant of the, of the letters for us to talk about today. But in the United States alone, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. In 2013, Forbes magazine ran an article and they said, the poorest people in the U.S. are richer than 70% of the entire world's population. I'm not saying that, that should, that's good or bad in terms of what quality of life people have, but the poorest people in the U.S. are richer than 70% of the world's population. We are known in this country for innovation, the industrial revolution, inventing. We are known for our technology, right? We are known for making things better and faster and stronger and developing things. We are an innovative country, aren't we? A lot of the innovation of this world comes from this country. Certainly not all of it, but a lot of the innovation from this world comes from this country especially medical science. When you look at the pharmaceutical industries, when I worked for the pharmaceutical company and everyone would talk about the benefits of socialized medicine and healthcare in different areas of the world, one thing they would always selectively leave out is though there is socialized medicine in other areas of the world, most of the innovation for medical science and prescription drugs come from the United States of America. And the other countries use that technology. So we are strong medically as well. A couple years ago when we took a bunch of students down to YWAM in Tyler, Texas, uh, we brought them to Houston on week two. And Houston is an incredible medical district. You can walk and walk and walk through Houston and everywhere you look, there are hospitals. It's the hub, one of the hubs in our country of medical science and strength. Our hospitals and medical schools are some of the best in the world. We certainly have great financial strength. We also have incredible military strength. The U.S. spends more in their defense budget than the next nine countries combined. Think about that. So we have financial strength. We have medical strength. We have innovation. We have knowledge. We have technology. We have security. And all of those things combined, if we take a step back and we look at what the attitude sometimes of our country is, especially when you look outside our country, many times people will look at Americans and say, Americans are arrogant. They think they know better than everybody else. They think they know the way better than everybody else. And certainly that's a blanket statement, but that is true. When you listen to people that there is more of that, we understand technology better than you, or we understand mindset better than you, then there is the opposite. So I'm sharing that this morning because there's a danger for the church of Jesus Christ in this country. If you're looking for a solution in this country, you can get it. If you're looking for an answer to your problem, you can Google it. If you're looking for healing for your ailment, you can medicate it. There's so many things we can do in our country. And if we're not careful, the mindset that applies to the church in Laodicea can apply to us as well. God, thank you for salvation, but we don't need you because we can take care of it all ourselves. You with me? You know what I'm saying? This is so important for us to understand that we cannot rely on ourselves and our country and the culture of our country is teaching us that we have the resources to rely on ourselves. But that's a lie because the key to experiencing a full life, Jesus says, is to follow him. The key to experiencing abundant life means trusting in him and living for him. 
Jesus said he came that we would, come, that we would experience a full life. That's John 10.10. 10. So the question I'm asking this morning is, does the church rely on itself, or do we, in this country, rely on Jesus? And if I can make it even more personal, instead of looking at the broader church or, bri- or bridge, let's make it really personal and ask ourselves the question right now. Do I rely on myself? Do I rely on my strength? Do I rely on my wealth? Do I rely on my wisdom and knowledge? Or do I rely on Jesus? This is a real question that each one of us has to ask. And at the root of it is basically who's in control of our lives. Am I in control of my life? Or is God in control in my life? So one question I want to ask this morning is simply this. How can I rely on Jesus? And there's two points I want to make. How can I rely on Jesus? Because I find in my own life that there are times... Sometimes there's smaller moments, but sometimes it's a pattern that God reveals to me to say, you've been doing this for this time all by yourself. Paul, you've been trying to solve this issue all by yourself. You've been trying to find a solution to this struggle all by yourself. You've been trying to find your path in life all by yourself. And what God wants us to know is the answer to those things is not becoming stronger. It's not becoming better. It's not becoming wiser. It's to become a servant of the most high God. And he's the one, when he gets in the driver's seat of our heart, he's the one that shows us where wisdom comes from, where truth comes from, where power comes from. He's the one that shows us what it means to live an abundant life. It is not in any way a call to live at a certain standard of living. It's not a call for us to sell what we have and give everything to the poor. It's not a call to abandon all of those resources when our heart is in the right place. All of those things are used for God's purposes. I was talking to my kids just the other week and we were texting back and forth and they were talking about God's plans and God's will for their lives. And I, and I just said something back to them just, just briefly. And I said, guys, remember this. God is less interested in what you do and more interested in who you do it for. Just remember that principle. He's less interested in what you do. And he's more interested in who you do it for. Because sometimes we so prescribe this solution to say, we will not move unless we know exactly the next thing and what it needs to be. And God says, if your heart calls you towards something that's aligned to my will, I'm less interested in the thing that you're doing in that moment. And I'm more interested in the priority and the position of your heart towards me. So trust in him and watch what he does. Ask yourself, if you're in control or I'm in control. So how can I rely on Jesus? Two things I want to mention briefly this morning. Number one, value what Jesus offers more than what the world offers. You see, I could stand here all morning until I'm blue in the face saying, we need to rely on Jesus. We need to rely on Jesus. And we could nod our heads and say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. And if I can boil it down to what I think would help us, what helps me, is recognizing this principle that I need to value what Jesus offers more than the world has to offer. Because when what he has to offer is worth more than what the world has to offer, I will rely on him. I won't rely on the things around us. Make sense? We have to be reminded of that because the world continues to tell us, our culture continues to tell us that what it offers is of the greatest value. It is of the highest price and you want it more than you want anything else. Some of you know when I was younger, 
I had a problem with doing bad things like stealing and crazy things like that. And, and some of you have continued to remind me that, that, um, that you remember that. Um, <laughs> in joking ways, actually, I uh, talked about it one time a number of you know, months ago, and someone came up to me and said, you know, thanks for your honesty. We, we, uh, we kind of share that experience. And they, they talked honestly about their thievery in their past. Um, well, there's two ways that you can steal things. You know, you can just flat out take it. And I did that a lot when I was in elementary school. I'd take things from stores and people's pockets, teachers' desks. I did all that kind of stuff. Um, notice my parents aren't here this morning that I'm sharing all this, um, if, for those of you that know them. And I did those kinds of things. But there's another way to do it. And one of my friends and I, uh, we were super creative. We would go into the drugstores. And you remember years ago when they had price machines, the little stickers, and they'd put stickers on all the things? And, you know, the person would be there and chick, 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 chick. Well, we would go into the stores and we'd find the things that we wanted that were of higher value and we would find things of lower value and we'd swap the tags. And then we'd come back and we'd buy the thing we wanted for a cheaper price because it felt legit. Look, some of you were like, I see some of you are just like, I can't even believe I know you, that you would do that. Okay, you come up here and share your stories and see what you would do. Why did we do that? Because it was hard to walk out of the store with something that, you know, you couldn't fit in your pocket or your jacket, right? You couldn't do that. So we had to come up with a creative way to do it. So we would take things that were of higher value. And higher value, I'm not talking like $30, $40. I'm talking about things that were maybe $5, 8 $10. And we put 99-cent tags on them. And we walk out and go, ah, oh, it's a dollar, you know. And even the people at the counter sometimes were like, wow. And I'd be like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'd just like, yeah, it's a good deal, right? They're like, I didn't know this was on clearance. I'm like, it's not. I didn't say anything. It was on, you know, the five-finger discount clearance. I'm sharing that story because we ascribe value to things that don't always have true value. And when we swap the tags, here's the interesting part about that, is that sometimes we would swap the tags on things, have to come back, and we would come back, the thing was gone. Someone else got a great deal because they paid a little amount of money for something that was worth a lot. Conversely, someone got a bad deal because they paid a lot of money for something that was worth very little. And that's what's important for us to understand today. The world tries to tell us that their way is the most valuable. And somehow in the process of life, the lie has switched the price tags. So the world says, I offer you the most valuable thing you could ever want. And what they don't want to show you is that the tags have changed. And Jesus says, I offer you something that is very beautiful. And they want to show you a low price tag. But Jesus says, do you want to know how much this costs? It cost me everything I have. That humbles me. Whatever we spend on the things in this world can never overshadow and exceed the cost that Jesus paid for what we have through him. And it's the greatest value. And we have to remember that, that if we want to look at what the world offers versus what Jesus offers, when we recognize the value that comes from knowing Christ, the value that comes from him giving his life, the value that comes from being in relationship with him, not just for now, but for eternity, we will rely on him and not on our own abilities. So value what Jesus offers more than the world offers. He speaks to this in verse 18 and he says, look, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. 
white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See what he's doing here in this verse? He's identifying things of value and he's redefining them. And he's saying, you know what kind of gold you should buy? Not the gold that you're used to. Laodicea had a lot of gold. He's saying the kind of gold that I can give you is refined in the fire. And gold in that context was synonymous with instead of building your kingdom, I want to build you as a person. Instead of building your empire, I want to build your character. Instead of making you the ruler of the world, I want to be the ruler of your heart. And that's the kind of gold he's talking about. And then he speaks to the white clothes. And white clothes all through the book of Revelation is synonymous with forgiveness, freedom, deliverance. And what he's saying about the white clothes that we can have is if you follow me and if you buy these things from me, you will put on forgiveness. How many times have I tried to forgive myself for things that I wish I never did? How many times do we walk through our life with regrets of things we wish we did differently? Maybe that happened to you this week. Maybe that happened to you this morning. But Jesus says, in Christ, there is no condemnation. In Christ, there is the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, this is a message that not just we need to hear, but the world needs to hear. I could never come to God, people say. I've been far away from him for too long, or I've done too many bad things, or my life has been living a complete opposite direction. Wow, how can I not talk about Kanye West getting saved? Wow, some of you are like, who's Kanye West? (laughs) Right? Hey, Chick-fil-A just went to another level because he has a song about Chick-fil-A. You're like, did you listen to that? You bet I did. I downloaded and listened to the whole album. I did. I'd be, I admit it, it's a little painful for me because it's not my kind of music. Um, but, but here's what's really important. People all around the country, in the world, but mainly the country, are criticizing, not everyone, but people are criticizing the legitimacy of what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. Well, how do we know he's saved? He's preaching the gospel. Well, how do we know it's genuine? He's preaching the gospel. Well, how do we know he's not just doing this to make money on a new album that he released called Jesus is Lord? I don't know. And it's not my business to know. It's not my business to know. Do you hear what I'm saying? How could God love someone who lived this way all these years? And he was a, you know, he did some stupid stuff, man. And he did it publicly for the world to see. How many times I look at him on TV and I'm like, what's the matter with that guy? Why does he say those things? Is Jesus big enough to save Kanye West? You bet he is. Do we know that it's going to stick? I don't know. It doesn't matter. For me, Jesus even talks about it in the Gospels. Jesus, Jesus, the disciples come to him and go, there are people that are like healing people in your name. And like, we don't even know these people. And like, I don't even know if they're saved. Jesus says, so what? Let them speak the gospel. What does it matter? Just let them do what they're going to do. Fast forward to the Apostle Paul, and they're, they're going to Acts. Apostle Paul, hey, Paul, we got a problem. Like, there are these guys that are like casting out demons, and they're doing stuff, and I don't think they're believers, and I don't know what to do about it. And Paul says, what does it matter if they know Christ or not? Lest the gospel be preached. That's what matters. The word of God matters. That's what matters. And I'm not saying, hear me on this, I'm not saying we all get Kanye buttons and we become his minions, okay? There are people that will do that. Kanye, I love you, I love you, Kanye. No, don't worship a man. Worship the, uh, the man. Worship Jesus. 
the man and the son of God. So with the danger in this is that people then begin putting an idolatry mindset on someone. And then when he does make a mistake, and he will because he's human, he will fall at some point in some way. And people will go, you see, you see, I knew it. I knew he wasn't genuine. Wow. What if we did that to ourselves? Jesus says, buy from me white clothes. Buy from me white clothes. What kind of white clothes? Ah, so when you wear them, you can cover your your shameful nakedness. Why? Because when Jesus covers us, there is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no bitterness. There is no unforgiveness. There is none of those things. What do we have? We have pure relationship with God. That is eternal. And that is more valuable than anything the world can offer us. Amen? That's so important for us to know. And then he looks at the salve for the eyes. Put the salve on your eyes so that you can see. You see how he makes this connection with this, with this city? Gold because they're wealthy. White clothes because of their industry and their textiles. And the salve because of their medical schools and eye ointment. And he says, and take the salve, put it on your eyes so you can see clearly. And what is he talking about here? We all need wisdom in this world. We all need guidance in this world. We can't figure it out ourselves. When we try to be our own boss, we always end up in the gutter at some point. We always end up hitting a brick wall. Oh, but those that trust upon the Lord and wait upon the Lord renew their strength. They'll rise up with wings at eagles. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on, his own, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Psalm 119, 105 says, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And the Holy Spirit all through the New Testament is our comforter, our caregiver, our provider, our healer, our savior. He's all of these things. And none of those things come from the world. They all come from God. Amen? They all come from God. So this is what he speaks to us about value. And he's saying, let me show you how valuable I am. And the cost of that was his very life. The second thing that I want to mention as our worship team comes as we get ready to close this morning. How can I rely on Jesus? Is simply this. Submit my life to him. Submit my life to him. If we went back to verse 18, this is what we would see. Look at verse 18. I counsel you, look what he says, to buy from me. What is he talking about? He's saying invest in the right things. And when we invest, we take something that we value and we entrust it to someone else. When we invest our time, we value our time and we pour it into someone else. When we invest our money, we take something of value and we entrust it to someone else to manage. Our gifts, all the things we've been given, we invest it into others. And to rely on Jesus means we have to submit our lives to him. Because what we invest in reveals what we value. Whatever I invest in reveals what I value. And there's no greater way to show what we value than by the price we are willing to pay for it. The beauty of all this is that Jesus wraps this up in verse 19. He begins to wrap it up and he reminds us, because this is such a hard word. I'm sure it was a hard word for the church of Laodicea to hear. Jesus said that we make him sick. Jesus says he wants to vomit us out of our mouths, out of his mouth. How is that love? And in verse 19, he says this. Those whom I love, I rebuke 
and discipline. See what he says? Church, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. We understand this in the physical, don't we? If we're going to love our children, we're going to love them by bringing care to them and we're going to bring correction to them. Children that are not corrected grow up to be painful children for themselves and everyone else around them. They become unruly adults that are totally self-focused and they hurt themselves and they hurt everyone else around them. Jesus is saying, church, I'm not bringing this to you as a closed hand and a fist. I'm bringing it to you with open hands because I rebuke those that I love. I discipline those that I love. So be earnest, he says, and repent. Change your ways. And he says, what a beautiful picture, he says to them. Here I am at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with them and he with me. And he speaks to the beauty of feasting together with friends. You see, Laodicea didn't just understand self-provision and wealth and all the things Jesus talked about. When they partied, they partied. When they had a feast, they had a feast. And Jesus tells them, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're wrestling with. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking and my heart is to be in relationship with you. So don't take the condemnation with you. Don't open the door and wear the weight. Rely on me and leave your burdens on the floor. Cast your cares on me because I love you and I have a plan for you and I will enter in and we will be in relationship. He's always wanting to be closer to us and he waits and desires to be with us. And his promise in verse 21 says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You see, each one of these messages applies to us at different times. But this morning, can I ask you to just ask an honest question to yourself? Are you relying more on yourself than you're relying on Jesus? Are you trying to run your life or is Jesus in control of your life? Because when God's in control of my life and and there are times in my life that I look back from today to when I was first married to when I was younger and I noticed something. I noticed that the times that I was the most helpless, I saw God work the most significantly the time that I knew I had no ability to change a circumstance is when I saw God do his greatest work. And it doesn't mean that we should always be a place of helplessness where we walk around discouraged, but but most people choose to come to Christ when they recognize their own depravity and there's no other solution to the condition in their hearts. People don't usually come to Christ on the mountaintops. We feel good about ourselves when things are going great. that I've seen God work the most in my life are the times that I have been the least. When I have no one else to rely on, I have no phone to call someone for the answer. I have no check I can write for my bank account. I have no medicine that will heal the situation. I need to rely on Jesus and he uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Would you stand with us, please?
going to sing this song as we close. And I'm just going to open up altar time for you. You don't have to wait till the end of this song. If God is speaking to you this morning and he's saying, listen, there's a part of your life that looks a little bit like Laodicea. Respond to him today. Make a new choice today to follow him and not your way. Or maybe you just want to come to the front and you just want to worship with others that are here just saying, God, we are going to make a declaration to build our life on the foundation of Jesus Christ because on his foundation, we can be assured that we will never fail. You're welcome to come as we sing.